Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I'll tell you one person who isn't accepting Don Lemon's apology, Megan Kelly. Listen to this. Does someone have to grab a boob for us to count? Now, how's that for a line to draw you into the story? So on her Sirius XM show, Megan Kelly, who knows something about sexual harassment, uh, is sort of rhetorically addressing Chris Licht, the chairman at CNN, for the way he put Don Lemon back on the air. Lemon didn't apologize on the air. He just did it by tweet. Uh, you know, of course, by now, unless you've been living in a cave, that for inexplicable reasons, Don Lemon decided to go off on Nikki Haley, who's 51 years old, by saying, and you know, she's made an issue out of Donald Trump's age and Joe Biden's age, and saying, well, I mean, Nikki Haley is in her, her prime. you got to be in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s for a woman to be in her prime. And a lot of people at CNN are reported to be upset about this. And Licht, uh, you know, announced or sent this staff a memo saying he's going to undergo formal training. Well, if you work for any large corporation these days, you undergo mandatory training on uh, sensitivity and racist and sexist behavior every year. It's a requirement. I mean, Don Lemon's been on TV half his life. You think he know these things. Anyway, getting back to Megan. So she's addressing Chris Lick and she's saying, do women matter? Do we matter? Because it shouldn't have to be that you were raped by a man or 21 women come forward alleging that they've been sexually harassed by a man or they've been inappropriately touched by a man for their offense to matter. She said, we've seen person after person get fired because they caused offense, more offense. Well, when it comes to race, when it comes to sexual orientation, when it comes to gender identity, does women's offenses matter? Do something real. Prove to us that you actually see this guy's got a repeated problem with women. He's a sexist. She went on to say, how are they going to let him cover Nikki Haley? How is he going to cover anybody? How is he going to cover Kamala Harris? He doesn't respect women. He sits at the anchor desk with. And for them to continue tolerating him makes them part of the problem. Well, you know, Megan has her point of view. She can speak out and she seems to think at the very least um, Lemon is deserving of more punishment than this. I have the feeling that He's lucky that this is sort of a last chance of sorts uh, because Don Lemon has a history of saying controversial things. Let me put it diplomatically and delicately like that. And there was reporting in the LA Times the other day that there were serious conversations uh, at CNN before Chris Lick decided on this course of action about removing him from the morning show, which is a complete flop, struggling in the ratings. And... Maybe Lemon is not what that show needs. And they maybe they decide that six months now. I don't know. But when you have reports of tension between the biggest star on the panel, Lemon, and the two women who are his co-anchors, that's not good. 
Okay, so Marjorie Taylor Greene is continuing to get pounded over her suggestion of a national divorce. You know, the red states and the blue states are just split up. And I've also already raised the question, it's totally impractical. Uh, her state of Georgia, is it a red state? It's got two Democratic senators, Democratic governor. I don't know. Um, and then I thought that she was sort of backing off by saying, well, I'm just saying that states should take over more functions like education and other issues, but there would still be a federal government. In other words, that she wasn't calling for secession. But it almost doesn't matter because now she, she came out with some follow-up comments about, well, if you move from a blue state to a red state, you shouldn't be able to vote for five years. So you don't bring in your noxious liberal views to our glorious playground of a red state. And here's Laura Ingram on Fox last night saying, okay, well, first, a law prohibiting American citizens who've not committed a crime from voting would probably not withstand legal scrutiny. That's putting it delicately. Uh, And second, how would a national divorce be good for conservatism? Now, why would we want to embrace the states that gave us Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, but essentially give up on the states that gave us Reagan and Trump, California and New York. Uh, the last thing we need is an American breakup of any sort. Remember, a motto of this show, almost from the start, over five years ago, has been no state left behind. Just because it often seems like Democrats have given up on America themselves doesn't mean ever that Republicans or conservatives should. So when you've got Laura Ingram, um, let's just say poking many holes, your national divorce argument, I think it speaks volumes, obviously. Even the White House responded. I mean, it's, it's you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, her reason she has such a high social media profile is she says things that other people won't say. But, you know, she says, oh, I don't want a civil war, but how is she talking about accomplishing this? So I just wanted to share that from Ms. Ingram. Now, a couple of uh, really serious stories here. Um, Remember I told you the other day, you may have seen this elsewhere, that the charges against Alec Baldwin have been reduced uh, for that tragic, accidental, fatal shooting on the set of Rust of his cinematographer. Well, in emails unearthed uh, in Discovery, I guess, um, a prosecutor in New Mexico admitted it was 100% wrong, 100% wrong, to hit Alec Baldwin with a gun enhancement charge that carried a five-year potential prison sentence as opposed to the 18 months he would face otherwise. And I've been saying this all along, and again, I'm not letting Alec Baldwin completely off the hook, but he was overcharged. And a lot of legal experts are surprised to see even any criminal charges. Yes, I know it's negligent homicide. Um, by these uh, prosecutors in New Mexico who are like, hey, we've got a very famous guy here, and we can be famous. So the emails are going back and forth, and there's a special prosecutor in the case whose name is Andrea Reeb, and she's responding to somebody else, maybe in the district attorney's office or one of her colleagues. And she says, I 100% agree with your assessment on the issue. I will have our documents drafted to amend the criminal information to take off the firearm enhancement and file something withdrawing the firearm enhancement. We missed it by three months. Well, here's what that means. First of all, it just shows you what sloppy work this was. Second of all, one of the problems, and that's why they withdrew this, not just because they got kind-hearted. One of the problems is they were charging Alec Baldwin with something that was not a crime 
at the time of the accidental shooting. That's why she says we missed it by three months. You can't suddenly decide that what I did last week is illegal because you passed a new law yesterday. It has to be in effect at the time. You don't have to go to Harvard Law School to understand that. So I think they are, are, should be very embarrassed about this. And even more tragically, uh, a television journalist covering gun violence and a nine-year-old girl happened to be nearby were shot and killed in Orange County, Florida yesterday. Um, another journalist from the same network, Spectrum News 13, was also shot, as was the girl's mother. And those two were taken to the hospital. Now, as I'm speaking to you, there has not been a positive identification made of the television journalist who was there at the scene of a homicide of a woman in her 20s from earlier in the day. So you're the journalist. It's your job to go cover crime in your area. Somebody's been fatally shot. You go there. And somehow the gunman, I guess, came back more than once. And you wind up dead. I mean, it's just a nightmare. And it just goes to show you that, although lots of journalists, you know, sit in the office and make phone calls and read Twitter, uh, it can be a dangerous job. It can be a dangerous job overseas. It can be a dangerous job here at home. So uh, I'll update you on that when we have some more. Story number one, East Palestine, Ohio. This story has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and gotten all kinds of entanglements now with politics. And I want to lead with something that's largely the media angle. It's a very good piece by Jim Garrity in National Review. And then we'll get to some other news developments, including a former president who was there yesterday. The train derailment occurred back on February 3rd. So that's just shy of three weeks ago. This is the rare disaster that is getting more media attention in its third week than it received in its first week, and that is undeniably true. The fairest complaint from the locals, writes Garrity, is that because the derailment occurred in a small town in Ohio, 20 miles south of Youngstown, 40 miles northwest of Pittsburgh, it didn't immediately become big national news, uh, despite the horrible-looking pictures and so forth. And look, it is obviously just a fact as he says, that the national media pay close attention to New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, maybe Chicago, a couple other cities. If this train crash had occurred on a Norfolk Southern line, say, near Trenton or Wilmington or Alexandria, Virginia, the coverage would have been immediate and intense. So I don't really think that's up for debate. Uh, but then that led people there, when national media did show up, to feel like, well, we're just flyover country. And they didn't even know about this. And here are these toxic chemicals that have gotten into the water, that have created this environmental disaster. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a, a natural disaster, earthquake, hurricane. Um, and the feds believed that Norfolk Southern should bear the entire cost of the cleanup. And that led to an initial denial of assistance from FEMA. And that becomes key in the narrative. So, on February 16th, so that's a week ago, Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine issued a statement declaring he had spoken with officials at the White House early that morning to address the need for federal health. As a result of this conversation, says the governor, uh, he's requested uh, assistance from HHS and the CDC to provide on-the-ground assistance in East Palestine. 
that the Wine Administration has been in daily contact with FEMA to discuss the need for federal support. The next day, Mike DeWine comes out and says, although FEMA is synonymous with disaster support, they're most typically involved with disasters with tremendous home or property damage or flooding. Uh, However, to ensure that East Palestine can receive assistance from FEMA, Governor DeWine, excuse me, Governor DeWine is preemptively filing a request to preserve these rights. A few hours later, the FEMA regional administrator uh, issues a joint statement saying FEMA will supplement federal efforts by deploying a senior response team along with the regional incident management team and all this bureaucratic jargon. So FEMA is helping, but the initial denial led to this narrative and the damage was done. You know, FEMA doesn't care. FEMA blew it off, even if the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency had legitimate reasons for doing so. And then, says Garrity, uh, throw in President Biden's traveling to Kiev and announcing $500 million more in weaponry for Ukraine, it became an all-too-easy target for Biden's critics. Um, Governor DeWine and the EPA administrator sipped local tap water in front of the cameras to show that it's safe. Um, this goes on and on. The uh, Ohio EPA found that it was safe, but did detect very low levels of two contaminants. Well, you know, wouldn't you be worried about giving it to your family? Um letting them drink tap water if you live there. Uh, But now there's more to this. People in that area are worried about their livestock. Thousands of fish have died in the waterways. There's a strange smell in the air. Um, And yet, here's the town's mayor, Trent Conway, telling MSNBC on February 17th, I think if the president came, it would do more harm than good. There's a lot of security details that need to be around him, ambulances following him, and I think it would be a burden on our residents. Four days later, this same mayor goes on Jesse Waters' Fox show and says, Biden going to Ukraine is the biggest slap in the face. That tells you right now he doesn't care about us. It's a little change in tune there. Now we get to Pete Buttigieg, who is, of course, the Secretary of Transportation. Bloomberg headline, Buttigieg bashing over response to Ohio derailment turns bipartisan. Now, I don't think there's any question that Pete Buttigieg was slow on this. Yes, it is true that because it's an environmental disaster, his agency doesn't take the lead. But as I've said the other day, he's the most visible member of President Biden's cabinet. He's very good on television. even mentioned this for a week. And he acknowledged in an interview just the other day that he should have spoken out sooner. Mayor Pete will be going to East Palestine today. But... The guy who was there yesterday is Donald Trump. So by appearances, it makes it look like that's the reason Mayor Pete is going. I don't think that's true. He's talked for a few days about going. He should have been there a long time ago. Now, look, in reality, does an appearance by a cabinet officer, a vice president, a president, you know, substantially change the facts on the ground when you're dealing with this kind of toxic environmental disaster? No. But politics is often about optics. You go and you show you care. That's why... Joe Biden went to Kiev, which I think was a terrific move on his part. And all of this, like, well, you know, he should have gone to Ohio instead of Kiev. I mean, you know, so let's say there'd been no train derailment. Then it's okay to go to Kiev. I mean, a lot of this is partisan shot taking. But I do think Buttigieg uh, was flat footed here. And now Trump can say, Trump goes there and he gives out Trump water and he gives out some lesser quality water. Uh, And, you know, it was actually a shrewd move for him to go. 
no recognizable name for the administration was there, so the former president goes. Um, and he says, uh, we're bringing a lot of water, thousands of bottles. His remarks were not carried, by the way, by any of the three major cable news networks. Um, and he says, you know, these people, they were intending to do absolutely nothing for you. And he sort of takes credit for Buttigieg being there today as he goes. And it's a fair political shot. What took so long? New York Times uh, account says that here's Donald Trump saying the Biden administration had shown indifference and betrayal as he talked about the water. And he didn't make a reference to fake news, of course. But he praised reporters for their coverage. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. was there as well, as long as Senator J.D. Vance. Um, Trump knocked Biden as absent after things got worse in East Palestine. Uh, and here's an interesting thing on special report yesterday, uh, the Fox show anchored by Brett Baer. Um, Brett Baer pointed out that Buttigieg is going today. And he also quoted from a piece in Politico saying, it is exceedingly rare for a transportation secretary to visit the site of a train derailment, especially one that resulted in no fatalities. Uh, he goes on to say there were train derailments in the Trump administration that actually had fatalities that didn't have a visit by Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. But this seems to have some momentum. And Britt Hume added that Biden's trip to Ukraine is more than justified because it involves the security of the United States and, says Britt, and this is the point I was making just a second ago, uh, substantively, it doesn't make much difference whether Biden goes to the derailment site or not. Politically, it might. And we'll see how Buttigieg gets covered today. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Number two. So I got two items here about Ron DeSantis, who, you know, without doing all that much, is being treated as a top-level presidential candidate. So Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC was interviewing Vice President Kamala Harris a few days ago, and she offered a postscript on her show uh, having to do with a question she asked that involves the Florida governor. In that interview with the VP, Mitchell said, why does DeSantis not want slavery or the aftermath of slavery to be taught in Florida schools. And Harris didn't correct her. Uh, DeSantis has tightened regulations on materials that are allowed in Florida schools, critical race theory and so forth. Um, critics say that this is a way to target LGBTQ and black history related materials. Uh, oh, here's the actual question. Let me ask you, what does Ron DeSantis not know about black history and the black experience? when he says slavery and the ethnic slavery should not be taught to Florida school children. Um, now, she does a sort of a walk back, Andrew Mitchell saying in my interview last Friday with Vice President Harris, I was imprecise in summarizing Governor DeSantis' position about teaching slavery in schools. Governor DeSantis is not opposed to teaching the fact of slavery in schools, but he has opposed the teaching of an African-American studies curriculum, as well as the use of some authors and source materials that historians and teachers say make it all but impossible for students to understand the broader context. 
Well, the DeSantis people were not pleased. His press secretary said the whole thing was shameful uh, and that Andrew Mitchell not only needed to correct her initial misstatement, but she needed to apologize. There's no wording there about regretting. And they're playing a little bit of hardball by saying, unless Andrew Mitchell apologizes and we can bat that one around, um, Ron DeSantis will do no interviews with anyone from NBC or MSNBC. So, I mean, these people know how to play hardball. And that leads into this political story in which the governor is working with a member of the state legislature, Alex Andrade, or Andrade, to push a bill that would greatly limit journalists' rights. And, you know, First Amendment experts are saying this is totally unconstitutional. The goal here, according to this political piece, is to overturn, just like we all thought Roe would never be overturned, the 1964 uh, Supreme Court decision on public officials' ability to sue publishers for defamation. Strong argument made the Supreme Court overreached. Back in 64, says Andrade, uh, this is not the government shutting down free speech. This is a private cause of action. And he says he is working with DeSantis on this. So, among other things that would allow plaintiffs who sue media outlets to collect attorney's fees. So that's a little intimidating because a big corporation that just doesn't like some story comes in and runs up the bill and it can have a significant financial impact on who's being sued. Um, adding a provision to Florida law that comments made by anonymous sources are presumed false for the purposes of defamation. That's interesting. Lowering the legal threshold for a, quote, public figure to successfully sue for defamation because it's a much high bar. It's a, it's a very high bar now having to do with uh, proving malice or reckless disregard for the truth. Repealing the journalist privilege section of Florida law, which protects journalists from being compelled to do things like revealing their unnamed sources. So in 49 states... Um, there is a reporter's privilege against court-compelled disclosure of source material and unnamed sources. Obviously, that has a chilling effect. Now, this legislator comes back and says, well, we're not saying anybody has to go to jail by protecting their unnamed sources. We're just saying um, that they can't hide behind that shield. They're often called shield laws. So I don't know if this thing's going to pass. It does have the backing of the governor, although DeSantis' office says, well, we'll see what the final bill is and whether or not he'll sign it. But this is not just, you know, complaining about media bias. This is getting serious. Story three, Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate, a man from South Carolina, kind of did a testing the waters thing yesterday with a big speech that sounded very much like he is running for president, which would make two candidates from South Carolina. Here's the Washington Post write-up. Took another step toward a likely presidential campaign with a formal condemnation of liberal policies and a call for national review, uh, renewal Excuse me, in Iowa. Well, that's why you would do it, right? Scott described the country as beset by misery and hopelessness with citizens consuming the empty calories of anger and politics, politicians hooking voters on the drug of victimhood and the narcotic of despair. At the very least, he's got a good speechwriter. 
he blamed Dems and liberals. He is obviously thinking of getting to a GOP primary, whom he accused of peddling a blueprint to ruin America. And he called out Biden for living in the past and exploiting the nation's history of racial oppression. I'm a little puzzled by that last one. I understand, obviously, a guy like Tim Scott's going to talk about race and should, but Joe Biden, you know, by traditional standards, has a pretty good civil rights record. So here's where I think his life story is unique. And it's interesting. If he gets any traction, we'll see whether many of the people who went crazy over Barack Obama will have a different view of an African-American candidate who happens to be a conservative on the Republican side. Scott said, Conservative, conservatism is my personal proof there is no ceiling in life. I can go as high as my character, my education, and my perseverance will take me. I bear witness to that. If you really wanted to ruin America, you try to convince everybody that it's more important and more effective to kneel in protest than to kneel in prayer. If you wanted a blueprint to ruin America, you'd keep doing exactly what Joe Biden has allowed the left to do for the last two years. And, you know, when Scott talks about himself, his, his family story is from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. Uh, he talks about his forefathers in the segregated South, uh, being raised largely by a single mother, his academic challenges in high school, the role that mentors played. I mean, this guy has an inspiring story. And now, though, he's obviously sharpening his attacks on the left. And he says, for those of you on the left, you can call me a prop. You can call me a token. You can call me the N-word. You can question my blackness. You can even call me Uncle Tim, which he actually has been called. Just understand your words are no match for my evidence. My existence shows your irrelevance. The truth of my life disproves your lies. I'm just reading it off the page. I didn't see the speech delivered, but that seems like some pretty powerful stuff. Now, does Tim Scott have a realistic chance of winning the nomination of a party whose members are overwhelmingly white? I don't know that he does. But a lot of people thought America would never see a black president in this lifetime. So, you know, when I read a story like that, my reaction is he's in. He's not doing this just to be popular in Iowa. Um, And we'll see where it goes. Number four. Here's a leaked story saying that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have been subpoenaed by the special counsel to testify before a federal grand jury about the 2020 election. Jack Smith, special counsel at DOJ, uh, the move to subpoena the president's daughter and son-in-law, both former senior White House officials, I would add, is, according to the New York Times, something that underscores how deeply Trump's inner circle Smith is reaching and that no potential high-level witness is off-limits. Remember, he's also subpoenaed Mike Pence. Pence says he's going to fight it. Uh, It's unclear whether Trump, that is, the former president, Donald Trump, will seek to block Ivanka and Jared from testifying on grounds of executive privilege, but since both of them served in the administration, Trump did not try to stop them from testifying before the House January 6th committee. Now, Ivanka's role, I think, may be more pivotal because... She was in the Oval Office on January 6th as her father was calling Pence to pressure him sort of one last time to block or delay the Electoral College certification of Joe Biden's victory. 
And she was also, she also accompanied her father to the rally of his supporters at the Ellipse near the White House um, before they all, most of them, many of them marched down to the Capitol. And I'm not sure it was in this story, but other witnesses have testified that Ivanka Trump tried to get her father to call off the mob once the riot at the Capitol was underway to intervene, make a public statement more quickly than he did. It was something like four hours while this all played out on TV, while we all saw the violence. So I don't know that the DOJ would learn anything new from Ivanka Trump that the January 6th committee didn't already learn. I don't know what role Jared would play. I also know that these things leak in a heartbeat. The way the justice system is supposed to work, you're not supposed to reveal who gets subpoenaed. It's a criminal investigation. But it's become so commonplace um, that nobody bats an eye anymore. And as soon as it happens, boom, the New York Times got the story up or somebody else has got the story up. And I think we've all become inured to it. But, you know, if it was your somebody in your family under investigation and your uncle got subpoenaed, you know, one of the reasons to protect, I mean, these are obviously world-famous people, is that you don't want your reputation marred if it turns out no charges are brought whether it's against you, whether it's against your dad, and so on. But again, uh, it's become just standard practice for these things to leak out of DOJ. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And number five, you may remember back when Joe Biden gave his State of the Union that he talked about attempting to crack down at the border, which has been out of control, a complete mess, despite happy talk from the Biden administration, oh, there's no crisis. And I thought it was significant because I thought, well, here is Biden pivoting or attempting to pivot to a somewhat more moderate position, showing that he too cares about the border. uh, And it's not just a question of Republican rhetoric against him. So here's a political piece that gives the details of what's actually going on. As the White House gears up for the end of one Trump-era border policy this spring, it has its sights set on resurrecting a version of another much maligned immigration program put in place under the previous administration. Now, the mere fact that Biden wants to do anything resembling what Donald Trump did, of course, is going to set the left's hair on fire. But let me give you some more. Homeland Security and Justice. Uh, announcing yesterday, or Tuesday, I should say, um, a rule that will bar some migrants from applying for asylum in the U.S. if they cross the border illegally or fail to first apply for safe harbor in another country. So after a 30-day comment period, this will take place in May. Now, it happens to sort of coincide with... um, the whole business about Title 42, which everybody who knows anything about this issue believes that when the Biden administration would um, end Title 42, illegal immigration would just soar. But here's something that sort of doesn't quite replace it. It's being privately called the transit ban, the asylum ban, but it would greatly cut down on the number of migrants who would illegally try to get into the U.S. because they would be turned back They have to go to another country first. 
They have to fill out a form on an app. And indeed, you could just, you know, counter this down on your Apple Watch. Uh, flood of backlash from immigration advocates and Democrats who accuse Joe Biden of perpetuating the Trumpian approach to the border. Well, the last two years, Joe approach to the border has not worked. It's been an abysmal failure. It's given uh, a great deal of political traction to the Republicans, and it's also been a burden on the country. You know, I'm not endorsing the idea of, you know, Texas and Florida shipping uh, migrants to uh, outside the vice president's residence or Martha's Vineyard. I mean, those are all very good political stunts. But what's happening now is um, a woman who is a former White House official, Andrea Flores, now works for Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat, condemned the administration saying this resurrects a policy that, quote, normalizes the white nationalist belief that asylum seekers from certain countries are less deserving of humanitarian protections. I'm sorry. It's not a white nationalist belief. It's an effort to gain control of who comes into this country illegally by targeting the countries where this has been the greatest problem. Every country has the right to have secure borders. And, you know, part of the Biden response is, well, you know, Congress isn't doing anything on my comprehensive plan where it would be kind of a trade-off. Tougher border security, however, um, reform, air quotes, depending on your, what you view reform as, of immigration policy. Uh, so administration officials got on the call of reporters. They said this was not a categorical ban on asylum. Uh, they're just expanding existing lawful pathways It's not intended to curb people from seeking asylum, but to help ensure order at the southern border. Why is that a horrible thing? Um, Now, this will also help the completely and totally overworked customs people who have to deal with the southern border. Oh, here's uh, a woman who's the president of the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service, former Obama official, said this reaches into the dustbin of history to resurrect one of the most harmful and illegal anti-asylum policies of the Trump administration. And then you have various Democratic members of Congress going on about this. Sergio Gonzalez, president of the Immigration Hub, flies in the face of Biden's campaign promise to rebuild a fair, humane, and orderly immigration system. So, but when the when first steps on this were taken uh, since December the number of asylum seekers and migrants attempting to cross the southern border has dropped by 40%. Now, what's interesting about this is not just the proposal itself. And it does sound like, you know, maybe it's not enough, maybe it's too much. You can decide for yourself. What's interesting about this is that the people around the president, the president himself, knew they would get hammered from the left on this. They knew it's kind of a, a, a... third rail issue for their base, particularly minorities. And they're doing it anyway. And they're doing it, I think, one, because there is and has been a humanitarian crisis at the border, which we have not had control of. And secondly, it's Joe Biden's way of saying, you know, I'm not a captive of the left. I'm willing to take on my own party or many members of my political liberal base in order to deal with something that undeniably is a problem for America. Um, I don't know that he'll get a lot of credit for that. 
I think the cameras and the reporters will all gravitate toward the advocates denouncing Joe because, you know, it's always a better story when there's friction within a party, either party. Um, but if they can show results, then I think it at least helps Biden diffuse the issue, although it certainly, and particularly among Hispanic voters, uh, is a risky strategy to have anything that could be associated with the word Trump. Hey, thanks for spending this time with me. Uh, I try to plow through some of the details of legislation, for example, or proposals without getting too much in the weeds, as well as dealing with the fun stuff. So um, join me again this time tomorrow. Same place. Well, it's not really the same place. You listen whatever the hell you want, but we'll see you with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.